Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. We're in Brooklyn, New York City with documentary maker Will Frankham talking about filming on location worldwide and everything from capital punishment, the American criminal justice system, the people who get let off death row, orphanages in Kenya, standing knee-deep in shit for hours in Norway, ice caves in the Arctic, Thai kickboxing, racism, cocaine, pizza, rats carrying slices of pizza and the town in Nebraska with a population of one person. A wonderfully enjoyable insight into the world of documentary making with Will Frankham. Where are we? We're in the Centre for Fiction in Brooklyn. The Centre for Fiction in Brooklyn, surrounded by bookshelves in this very echoey room, but what a beautiful place it is. And I am here with... Well, why don't you start with telling us something about yourself? My name is Will Frankham. I am a documentary filmmaker, originally from London, but now based in Brooklyn and New York City widely. And we've just spent the day together filming and recording other podcasts for Ethiopian Airlines, which has been very interesting, a celebrity chef and a well-known author. And you just seem to be the most well-travelled person in the world. Should we start at the beginning? You've been jetting around from a very young age on your own, haven't you? Well, funny enough, yeah, I guess I have. My first flight to New York was, I was nine days old, actually. Um, my mum famously tells us, well, famously to me, tells the story of me having to get my US passport when I was six days old. Um, so I had to swear, pledge allegiance to America and say that I love the country at the age of six days old. Did she so, bend your hand? Exactly. Into she had to hold my hand up and say that I love the country so they could give me a passport and I've sort of lived back and forth between the two countries mostly more since I was 12 but even from a very young age I was coming back and forth. But why was that? What were your parents doing? So my dad my dad is a sociology professor or was a sociology professor and he was teaching out here um, in New York. He came for a year over here from London, met my mum and she fell in love with him and moved back to London. So she, I grew up there for till I was about 12 and then my mum moved us back uh, here to New York. So since the age of 12, I've sort of had one parent in each country, siblings in each country, and travelling back and forth. You're one of those people. I grew up with people like you who were the unaccompanied minor on the aeroplane. So would you have, like, the air stewardess sitting next to you and looking after you? Yeah, well, my mum would drop us off. Me, and my, I have a brother uh, who's a, a year and a bit younger than me, and sometimes our even younger sister, who is a, six years younger than us, we, she would drop us off, and the three of us would... Traips to traips through with someone, and then they would get us on the plane, and then someone else on the other side would pick us up. But me and my brother were small enough that we'd have two chairs, and one of us would lay on the floor, and one of us would lay on the two the two chairs. You know, lift up the thing in the middle and, and sleep. Did you know that life wasn't like that for a lot of British kids at the time? Yeah, I, I think yes, we did. Really, I, I guess it was knowing that more for when we were in America, I knew that it wasn't the same for my American friends. It was actually, I think, once you got older, it was actually kind of 
you'd get a little bit annoyed that you had to leave your friends during the summer and go back over to England where, you know, I knew people, but more from when I was 12, it was a bit hard to to maintain those relationships and you'd feel like everyone was having a good time back home. But it was always really nice to, in some way, feel like an outsider and an insider. I think that's been really important to how I feel uh, ever since that age, really, that you've always got a sort of a way to view the place as someone who belongs a little bit, but also having a sort of step back a little bit as well. As a documentary maker, I'm just thinking like in a pop psychology uh, way this time and completely unfounded and uneducated guess, but I'm guessing that is actually quite a, a good basis for your you know, future life as a documentary maker. What, what was the route to documentary making? Well, I got quite um, lucky in a way. I, you know, my, me and my girlfriend were working at a homeless charity in London, St Mungo's, years ago, and we wrote an idea for a film uh, called In Prisma Life about a guy who was on death rows from the day I was born. Um, and Colin Firth and his wife, Livia, heard about it, and they decided to come on as producers, and they brought on this guy, Mark Evans, to direct it. And so we sort of fell into making films I was on camera then, and uh, so the film was sort of about my journey. But we both sort of fell in love with it, and so we both continued doing that in our own ways. Katie's now had three successful films, and I've kept doing it. I've done three more, two other projects about the death penalty. So I guess in some ways, looking at that thing about being an outsider and an insider, I very much do a lot of work around the American criminal justice system. I think it's really helped to be someone who can be seen to be, you know, I am a US citizen, I've lived here for a long time, I pay my taxes, I, I play a part in the the democratic system here, so I feel like an insider, but I also feel like someone who has the points of reference of something that is outside that, so I can sort of look at it from, from afar, so to speak, as well. You're the second death penalty person we've had. We like a, a cheery topic of conversation mm-hmm. on the Big Travel Podcast, but you're the second de- death penalty person. The other one was Clive Stafford-Smith, who is a known, a very well-known lawyer who travel, travels around trying to get people off death row. And you know him, I do I know him very well, yes. He's a very interesting character. So a lot of your travels, uh, we'll talk about some of the, the more fun stuff in a minute, but a lot of your travels presumably have been to death row facilities across the states well funny i've been to death row in pennsylvania um i've actually not really uh, the next projects we've done actually weirdly we did a a series of films where we drove across america uh, and we we made 10 films in five weeks from the back of an rv about innocent people that have been on death row so that was although all these people have been on death row we were meeting them in their homes essentially to sort of tell their stories and try and turn around these quick films that um, that was for a project called One for Ten. Hang on, um, these are people that had got off death row? Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. incredible. Well, there's like 160 of them now in America. So the project was called One for Ten, so for every ten people that had been executed in America, there was one person that had been released. There's actually now one for every nine people that have been executed. So we wanted to highlight the fact that there was this massive amount of people that had been exonerated and all these problems with with uh, capital punishment or the criminal justice system in, in general. And so we, we drove across and made these films about these people. And you can see them all. They're all on YouTube now. So, And then that led to this new film called The Penalty, which has just been released on Amazon. So what was that like, driving across America and going into these people's homes, these people that have been on death row and managed to, thank goodness, be you know, rescued, I guess? I think um, it was very... In some ways, it's very nice because you are meeting these people who are very... 
grateful for this opportunity in their life to, to have now been out of this situation. And also, you know, you do get a bit used to these stories to some degree. You know, we have done a lot of work around criminal justice. My girlfriend's other films are about criminal justice as well. So we spend a lot of time working in these worlds. So not that we're, you know, I guess it's like surgeons working in, you know, um, ERs that you get a little bit used to hearing these stories. But I think most importantly, it was just really getting to know the people and see the people. I guess the one thing that I found the most shocking of that, that project is just how much the same things played into every case, whether it was racism or, you know, snitch testimony or, you know, bad forensics or, you know, police twisting things or bad prosecutors or, or, or really weak defence attorneys. We were making films about individual reasons. Each film was trying to touch upon a different reason that someone might end up on death row. But really, a lot of the films could have all been about all of the things because they played into every single case. That's fascinating. And I, I think something that, you know, from the UK point of view, we sort of look at the American... I mean, don't get me wrong, I love America and everything... Not everything it stands for, a lot of what it stands for. But our, the problems we see are the sort of snap-happy, you know, judgments, uh, capital punishment guns and the healthcare system and those three things are, you know we think that actually that for the land of the sprit the free you know there's a there's a lot of unfree things going on oh yeah i mean i you know i was just listening to a, a, another podcast yesterday it was saying there's more um there's you know for a black male in california you're more likely to be in the prison system than you are to be in higher education we're now looking at a you know we, we have so many people in this country that are that are in prison for non-violent drug offenses um, which you know essentially is becoming legal in, most of, in, in a lot of case, in a lot of states, and there's no real you know the, there's not enough efforts to make the retroactive uh, freedom for a lot of the people that were, were prosecuted for selling weed and things. So you know you have a quarter of the entire pr- the global population for prisons here in America. It's, it's by far the biggest place to put people in prison than anywhere else per capita in the world. But I think things are changing slowly. I think that we're seeing. Uh, an understanding of that, even you know, the, you know, both political parties are really understanding now that there's been a massive rush to over-incarcerate in this country, and that it's costing a fortune, and it's not really helping people, and that maybe we need to start dialing it back a little bit. And I, I saw that wonderful documentary. What's it called? It was on Netflix about how black males have got disproportionately represented in that prison so population. The 13th. It was the thirteenth. Yeah, yes, film. really incredible, film. and how they criminalised drugs that were more likely to be used in the black community, whereas everyone in, you know, LA, New York, and all your white middle-class people in media or whatever industry are, you know, snorting coke and sort of getting away with it. Well, it was a hundred times, you get a hundred times more prison time for crack cocaine than you would for powder cocaine. Now, they've dialed that back a little bit, but it's still, I think, like 18 to 1 in the federal system. So I think, you know, that, that really was efforts to... To really, you know, you have really racialized the criminal justice system at that point. And that goes, you know, that's also in the same communities that are policed heavier. When it comes down to judges, they're, they're decided against differently. In every stage of the criminal justice system, there's a built-in level of racism that has really meant that the levels of incarceration for different groups in this country are, are so, so different. So you're travelling, when you're travelling and, and meeting these people, you're going to places where people are not generally going on holiday. And we love stories on this podcast. So can you tell us like a standout story, like some, a place you went or someone you met 
that really stands out? Well, actually, I think, I think when it comes to the US stories, actually it had nothing to do with prisons, but last year I went to, I was filming for BBC Travel, and I went to the town in America that only has a population of one. And so I met a woman called Elsie Isla. She runs this small town in Nebraska. She's basically the, the only person who lives there. So she's the mayor, she runs a bar, and she has to apply to herself for her own liquor license. She gets to vote for herself. And she was great. She was just amazing to me. And, you know, this is a... Filming in America, I do a lot of filming all over the US. And, you know, it's a beautiful place to go. And you can't, you know, the difference between Georgia and, you know, Washington State or Louisiana and Maine is so different. And, you know, the landscapes are beautiful. They're just, you know, I think it's a really interesting place to go. I mean, I don't only film in America, but it's, it, this is a nice place to work. How can you have a town with one person? How can that actually <laughs> physically be the case? But I think what happened to her is that she, you know, she lived in a very rural place where I think everyone kind of lived alone, essentially, whether it was a, a farmer living, you know, two miles from someone else. But she was the only person that lived in a place that had been a town that slowly everyone had left. And so when her husband had died 15 years ago, she became the only person left in this, what is essentially still no, you know, marked off as a town. I think, weirdly, down the road, there was a place with two people in her town, but she's the one winning. Yeah, that's double. That's double what <laughs> yeah. she's got. And you mentioned BBC Travel. Tell me about your work for BBC Travel. So I've only done a couple of films for them. I mean, I'm a freelancer, so I do all sorts of different things. Last year I was doing uh, Last Chance Lawyer for BBC Two. I did a bit for BBC Travel. Next week I'm, I'm leaving to go to Svalbard in, in the Arctic for BBC Travel. So it's just, they're, they've been great to work for. I just make little films for them. It's, you know, this is... Since I've moved to New York, it's a real mixed bag of different levels of work. You know, I'm, today I'm filming with you. You know, next week I'm doing them. You know, I'm, I'm sort of working on feature-length documentaries at the same time for my own projects. But, you know, it's, I think the nature of media now is you kind of have to be a jack-of-all-trades and be able to do a, a whole range of different things and be involved in different things. It's a dream job, a documentary maker, for many people, but the, the gig you've got next week for the BBC in Norway involves standing in shit for a few hours? Oh no, that's actually a different job for Discovery. Is it? What <laughs> yeah. is that job? So I'm doing a different, that's a, well that's a, I, I actually don't know, I'm not sure if I can talk about that. I'm okay. Just because well, I'm thinking, because it's a development shoot, it might not. They might get funny. But it involves standing and shit. Yeah. So I've done all sorts of levels of jobs. I have done jobs. I used to work on crime buses. I've stood around in shit. I've done everything. The the dream thing about this job is that it's not always going to be the best days. But every day is going to be different. Well, I loved it when you were talking about the going and standing in shit, the <laughs> mysterious standing in shit job that you can't tell us about. <laughs> that you got a phone call to say, can you come to Chile for a week? And it was a great job. You're like, I've already agreed to stand in the shit. I can't go <laughs> yeah. to Chile. No, listen, I would much rather be going to Chile for uh, 10 days than standing in the Gowanus Canal for three. This often happens that, you know, you're finally committed to a job and then someone else comes in and says, can you go do something else? But like I say, I mean, at least every day is different. I mean, the, the, it'll, I literally will have to climb out of the Gowanus Canal, probably take about five showers, and then I'm straight on a flight to the Arctic. So it's nice to, you know, it's never boring. Amazing. What are you doing in the Arctic? So that's a BBC travel film that I've pitched to them about, you know, just who, people living up in Svalbard, which is north, north, north of Norway. But what's interesting about it is that it's a, a place that anyone can essentially come to if they've got a... if they're, the country that they're from has signed up to the Svalbard Treaty. So it's a place that um, essentially is full of immigrants. So everyone there is an immigrant to some degree. 
um, and you know who are the characters who show up at the top of the planet and you know sort of all hang out together. And what is the treaty? So it was called the Svalbard Treaty. It was signed by is that Siren. Yeah, it's fine. We're in oh, New okay. York. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. I see, this is my documentary head on. So the Svalbard Treaty was signed by 83 different countries, and that was to make it so that this place was not owned by any one country, but is a sort of territory that is um, sort of shared for scientific uh, reasons and for trying to stop anyone from sort of claiming any land. So if, you, if your country signed up to this treaty, you can essentially show up in Svalbard and live there. So I think, you know, there's about just over 2,000 people there, but there's, a, you know, I think 65 different nationalities of people that are living there at the moment. And have you been already? No, I've never been. But my good friend Michael, who I know from London, went to university with him, he has lived there for like two years. So he, he was a successful man in the city in London and got bored of it and gave up and decided to try and become an Arctic explorer. So he's been out there taking people on guided tours on the ice and to ice caves and things like that for the Amazing. last two years so it's so you're going to do all of that with him exactly that so as much as i as much as i'm making this film i'm kind of getting to hang out with my mate and probably have a couple of beers in the evening each night as well that sounds fabulous have you been to any other remote destinations what's the most remote you've been i've been to alaska a couple of times in the winter that's more for uh, i've had a couple of projects at the anchorage film festival and so when I've been out there, you know, I often go out of Anchorage and go up into the mountains or something. That's an amazing place in the middle of winter as well because, you know, the sun rises and sets within sort of four hours and never gets much above the the horizon. And, you know, if looking out at the the landscape um, out from Anchorage is, is kind of like looking at the moon in the middle of winter. It's mad. I mean, I just can't... It looks like another world. I get to go to a lot of... You know, interesting places, but not often that remote. You know, last year I was in Kenya. This year I've been in uh, Vietnam and Singapore, Thailand a bit. You know, I'm traveling a lot, but most, mostly they're to sort of at least world travel places or places that have stories that we're following. Depends where the stories are, to be honest. Where have you felt happiest? I tend to really... I love Southeast Asia. I really do. I don't know why. I think maybe because Thailand was one of the most... One of the places I went to when I was, you know, sort of just when I was like 19 and with some friends and so I have really great feelings about being there I just think it's you know I love traveling in that area and I love being on the beaches and I love snorkeling so I love going in the water and diving um so I just think that whole area is just I just love it you know my my best one of my best friends Bernie he now lives in Vietnam so um, I was just out there for his wedding and, you know, I, I absolutely love it. What's the craziest thing that's happened to you in Bangkok? Because everyone has a crazy Bangkok story. I actually don't know. We, I, I had to go there to film... Um, I, don't think it was, I, I don't think I've really had any crazy Bangkok stories. I didn't spend that much time there when I was first travelling around. We would sort of arrive in Bangkok, spend the night and then get out. Um, but I did spend... Um, I had a really great experience a few years ago where... I went out with some guys who were doing, um, to film some guys who were doing uh, Thai kickboxing training. So we got to go to all these different gyms. And so we would travel around with my friend Mai, who was very, he's very well connected in the, in the, in the Thai kickboxing world. And so we were with these like American and English guys who we were filming. And so they got to get in the ring with the best, with the number one Thai fighter. And he literally kicked the crap out of them. But I've never seen anyone be so happy 
to to be beaten up in my life like they just thought it was the best thing in the world you know to to have gotten into the ring with this guy and you know did you see how much he beat me up that was amazing yeah you know, was love getting a good cooking yeah exactly so you mentioned you've spent quite a lot of time in africa well only a couple i've been to i've been to film in nigeria and kenya i went to last year i absolutely love africa so far my experience of it i mean i'd like somewhere i would like definitely to spend more time um Kenya last year we were filming for um, a charity and we were making a film about sort of the pitfalls of orphanages and what that is like. So all nations now are trying to switch away from orphan-based care uh, or orphanage-based care to family-based care for, for kids that can use it. So every nation signed on, but often that hasn't been communicated that well to the public. So we were making a documentary that was really um, sort of investigating that and meeting some people that have been in uh, orphanages in the past. Um, but that was great. I mean, you know, uh, we got to travel around with armed guards for a week and uh, go out on a bit of safari while doing it. And it was just a brilliant... I loved being... We were based in Nairobi the whole time. Um, but it was just a fantastic place. I really loved it. Did you visit any orphanages or they got rid of them now? We did go to visit one or two orphanages to sort of um, see the changes that are being made even in those places. So I think that, you know, even although there is a movement to try and get as much as possible into family-based care, there's still definitely a, a need for when children really don't have anywhere else to go. But I think that what in the past, or you know, orphanages have been almost the first port of call for an education if you didn't have any money, or you know, people would come and get your get take kids away from communities essentially to to fill up orphanages to get donations. So there is there's there's a real movement now to try and you know understand that these orphanages in some places are still necessary, but that they're also you know, we really need to be sort of trying to think about play ways we can keep children with their families or extended families as much as possible. And this film was really targeted, especially at tourists. So so don't, you know, if you're going to be travelling around the world, maybe don't be going and paying to visit orphanages or whatever because it doesn't necessarily do the kids any good. And, you know, it can be quite traumatic for children if people are coming in you know, they're making quick bonds with them and then they're gone after four or five days. So so this was very much targeted at young travellers who might be going to, to volunteer at orphanages globally. Because that's a, uh, it was a well-trodden path, wasn't it, for certain people, is like going to help out an, an orphanage and you think you're doing some good and actually, you know, you, you're not. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing we were really trying to say in the film is that, you know, these people have... We, we filmed a girl in London who had gone and volunteered at an orphanage for, for two weeks in Ghana, I think. And she really, you know, she was trying to do her best. She really, really cared. She loved these kids. And only sort of when she got back and she was really reading about it over the next couple of years and she really then realised that actually the part that she might have played in sustaining this model where these kids really did still have parents. You know, that's the big thing we're learning now is that most kids who are in orphanages globally have a parent who's alive. And she was sort of helping to sustain this model that was... For one, keeping the kids out, away from family, if that was a suitable place for, for them to be with their family, but also, you know, traumatising them by being there and then leaving and get, you know, she was getting letters for ages saying, you know, when are you going to be here? When are you, you know, you said you'd be there, you said you'd be here for the rest of my life and 
and she wasn't able to. She'd made a lot of promises so that she couldn't stick to. Struggle, isn't it? Like when you go to places where there's a lot of street children, and you know they're asking for money, and you know in places like Cambodia they've got missing limbs and they're quite seriously disabled, and you want to give them money, but everything when you read it, it's like don't give them money, go to a specific charity, and then you don't know which charities are the good ones. You know, people say take pens and things that they mm. can they can use themselves. It's so it's so hard to know what the right thing is to do. It's very hard. I mean, I literally had finished that film in Kenya and then I'd gone to um, Thailand uh, after a job. And, you know, we had the problem where people would then come into us and be like, do you want to come to our orphanage? And you can buy these things to give to the kids and then, you know, have your photo taken of you handing over these things to the kids. You know, as much as, even, even after I'd learned all this stuff, it was still... Not tempting, I wasn't about to do it, but I could still see how manipulative and how much I still couldn't, you know, I was looking at these children's faces feeling like guilty that I was about to say no. And it's a really hard thing. It's really hard to know how to travel responsibly and ethically. And I think it just takes, you know, a, a big part of traveling now is I think you have to, you know, be conscious, be conscious of the part you play in the world and your effect on the community that you're going to see. Particularly as a documentary maker, you are there, you know, hopefully impartially, but you are also going to broadcast this information and that must call to question all sorts of ethical dilemmas at times. Oh, massively. I mean, you know, and documentary in general is, you know, it's you, you try to be impartial, but you're never impartial. There are always choices about what I'm turning my camera on for, what am I pointing at, what choices get made in the edit you're always having to be aware of your own biases your own sense of what makes a story your own sense of what is the story that you're going to film or are you being open to is that story actually not the story that is the truth you know and I think that's that's a very hard thing to but you just have to be very very aware of it and constantly challenging yourself so you're, we're here in New York and this is an exciting place to live what's it like living in New York uh, it's got great pizza <laughs> I um, I actually, so I lived here when I was uh, in high school. So I was in high school from 12 to 18, but out on Long Island. And so this is my first time coming back and actually living in Brooklyn. I've been here now about two and a half years. I really like it. I mean, it gets very noisy. There are times when it starts to drive me a little bit mad with the honking and just all the traffic noise. But, I, you know, it's a busy place. It's great for, you know, if you love uh, museums and you love bars and you love pizza and you love good food, you know, there's never any uh, lack of places to try, you know. I mean, I can find a new restaurant in my area all the time, even though I've been eating out the whole time I've been here. So, I mean, I think the food is the number one thing, really. It's, it is it's no joke that people kind of only really eat out here. They don't seem to cook. People so don't have kitchens in our flats, do they? I know. Well, there are apartments are too small to cook in or something, you know. Yeah, so the food is fantastic. And it's just really, it's a nice place to be. It's an exciting place to be, I think. You know, I'd been in London for about 10 years previous to that. And as much as I still love going back to London and seeing all my friends and my family, um, this still feels at the moment an exciting place to be. I, I, I will be honest that I hate the winters. And after months of snow, it does start to drive you a bit crazy. But, um, you know, it, it, it's definitely a place where if you, if, you, if you want an exciting life, it's a good place to be. And also, as a documentary maker, it's a, it's a visual feast, isn't it? You know, you, you, you walk down 
or drive down or go down any street and it's like there's people that are straight out of central casting <laughs> you know there really are there's the people hanging around the street corners there's some nutcase shouting and you know wearing a placard there's the street vendors it is like a movie the, it's exactly like yeah. a movie Mark who I work with a lot as a guy I used to work with in London and run a company with he the first time he came to New York he was just like oh my god this is this is where Home Alone was and this is where this was and this is where this was and it's a place what's funny about it is it's a place if you've never been here you're still so aware of it you really know it and so showing up here it feels like a place you've been and I can't remember my first time coming here but I've been with lots of people for their first time coming here you know with friends and stuff and so it's such an exciting thing to see people see it for the first time and I used to bring people in from Long Island they'd come into JFK would stay at my mum's and then they'd take the train in and because you'd go underground there wasn't this sort of approach to Manhattan you'd walk up out of Penn Station and you'd suddenly be in the midst of it and to see people's faces to actually see the buildings that are like that was amazing and I think probably now you have that experience in other cities around the world but back in the 90s or late 80s it would be that was an amazing experience for people and actually it was a different place back then I mean I didn't get here in the 80s but I remember as a kid you know America was everything it was the coolest thing however New York had an edge you know New oh, York yeah. before uh, Giuliani and you know the various reforms was actually it felt like quite a scary place to be and it still does have that edge but not as much as before it does it I mean it famously had less murders in London last year you know it's like the, the thing is it's uh, what's I mean it's just become I really remember even when I was you know a teenager so what's that it's like uh, in like the late 90s going into Times Square was still a lot of like peep shows and stuff like that and they've just you know I mean some in some ways I think maybe it's lost some character I don't know but it's it definitely feels safe and it also feels like a place where you can come here and be a tourist and not be worried or you can come here and work and not be worried and and you know when I was growing up my my family weren't so keen on us coming in from Long Island to the city on our own on the weekends that did start to change in the late 90s but you know it's really now a, a, a different world you know I mean and also I think that what's become what's interesting is actually that man you know Manhattan is used to be the hub like now I, I barely come into Manhattan I stay in Brooklyn half the time yeah you know, things, it's expanded hasn't it oh, yeah. in, in you know probably for the better in most cases but better and for worse because it's the whole gentrification yeah. and then the rents rise and everything but today we were filming in Harlem I've never I've been to New York several times never been to Harlem Harlem yeah. felt like a bit too edgy before and now it was great oh there. it's lovely and I think that you know I mean I lived in uh, I've been I've moved around a bit since I've been here I've lived in Bed-Stuy and in Greenpoint and now in Williamsburg you know I, I think you do feel some tension as I think you do in London when people are moving around and they're, you know, they are gentrifying areas and they're changing, you know, they're changing the rental prices and whatever. But I do think that it, you know, it's a hard thing to be a part of. I think it's happening everywhere. And, you know, it, this is a really expensive city. It's become, I, it, I didn't realise how much more expensive it was than even London for rent or to try and buy a place. I mean, I, that feels a million miles away, but it does... You know, it, it does still make for quite a vibrant place, like London, you know. I mean, when I go elsewhere in America, I can't believe you can go to places where it is so homogenous. And at least, as much as there's tensions in different parts of this, you know, the city, because there are very much one group here and one group here, and they're sort of, you know, then there starts to be encroachment. 
it still leads to a very sort of vibrant place and you know a million different types of restaurants and lots of different culture and I, you know i think flushing in queens has you know more nationalities than anywhere else on earth i mean i, I feel like there's probably parts of london that would that would argue with that but you know you can you can eat at a different type of restaurant every night for the whole year you know it's what's great. the what's the most new york thing that's ever happened to you Oh, why isn't it? That's interesting. I would love to say that I was there to see a pizza rat dragging, you know, a rat dragging pizza down the street. I mean, a lot of it has to do with rats, let's be honest. (laughs) I mean, when I go home every night, I have to, like, you know, stay well away from the bins for the hundred rats that are jumping out. But, you know, I don't know. I I just, my favourite thing to do in New York is I love going to the Mets with my brother when we can get to them. Uh, I love taking the ferry across from Brooklyn to Manhattan. That's a great way to see the city. Just travel around by ferry if you can. And just go to any pizza place. That is literally my favorite thing about being here is I'm a massive pizza fan. And I can just, I feel like it's very hard to get a bad slice in this city. Um, so, you know, if you can give me a, a slice of pizza and a good dive bar anywhere, I'm quite happy. That sounds perfect. I love pizzas and dive bars. That sounds brilliant. Uh, I'm going to ask you my last question. And my last question is always about music because I think music and travel go hand in hand. And actually, just before I ask you about it, I want to tell you my New York experience with music is the very first time I came here. In fact, I'm doing it even now. I always think about there's so many songs associated with New York and not just the direct ones like New York, New York, but things like Across 110th Street and oh, one was going through my head right now and oh, Living for the City, you know, and when you do come up from the subway and you you hear Stevie Wonder going, New York, just like I pictured it, skyscrapers and everything, you know, that goes every time I see the skyscrapers that goes through my head. So New York has so many songs associated with it and I love that Broadway, you know, Nights on Broadway, I I I can rattle them off, it's a favourite game of mine. But my, my last question is always about music. It doesn't have to be a New York thing. But I think that music and travel very much go hand in hand. And if you had to choose one song that reminds you of a special or memorable, it doesn't have to be good special, a memorable time or place of travel, what would that song be and why? Where were you? Oh, what I, happened? My, oh, it's going to sound a bit cliche, but I lo- like my songs that remind me of travel are very much from you know my teenage years of traveling in you know sort of 1920 and back then we were really listening to a lot of Manu Chao so I'd say you know anything of Clandestino really that album is is just brilliant and I think that really really reminds me of traveling I think we would just have that constantly on playing it feels very international and it's multi you know it's in it's in multiple languages and I think, you know, any time I hear that, that makes me feel like, you know, I'm probably sitting on a beach somewhere. You know what, I can totally relate to that. Anything from that album, sitting on the beach, having a beer somewhere in oh, the sunshine. Ideal. Manu Chow, absolutely great choice. Well, thank you so much for coming yeah. on the Big Travel Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Will. It was great to hang out with you in New York. And we have more on location, big travel podcasts coming up, including possibly Ethiopia, Jordan, and my part-time home in Malaga, Spain. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast.
Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.